0: This is a Village Soundcast Network original production.
1: Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of Lens Me Your Ears, the podcast that takes a look at new movies playing in theaters and then tries to connect it with some movies from days gone by, either according to its star, or the genre, or the director, and helps you expand your look at the movies. My name is Stephen Cook, and I'm the arts reporter for LocalExpress.ca. I'm Karsten Knox, I'm a film
0: writer, and my blog is called Flaw in the Iris, and it's at HalifaxBloggers.ca.
1: And today we're going to be looking at something that proves that uh, Hollywood is one of the greenest businesses around because they've been recycling for over a century. Yes, we're going to take a look at remakes. And this is our first segment, looking at a new movie in theaters, and something that... uh, was something I was kind of looking forward to because I wanted to see how it was going to do, and that is the remake of The Magnificent Seven.
0: Yeah, The Magnificent <laughs> Seven. It's, it, it wasn't really high on my list of movies I was super excited to see. I, it just, I, I was like, why does this even exist, you know? Why do they <laughs> need to make, I, I sort of understand the logic behind remaking a film that wasn't a classic, but, you know, I mean, the fact of, of the matter is this is a remake of a remake.
1: Yeah. Pretty right? Much.
0: Pretty much. I mean, it was based on the, the Seven Samurai, the classic Kurosawa film from 1954, the original Magnificent Seven from, from uh, 1960, I believe. And uh, so, you know, in order to prepare for the new one, I went back and watched the old one, the John Sturgis Western. And it's funny because the Sturgis Western is is at 128 minutes, feels longer than the 2016 version in some ways. But in fact, it's just a little bit shorter. Uh, but it made clear two things to me, that the film is kind of a blueprint for boomer masculinity. Strong but silent <laughs> yes. American men do the noble thing as a team, even if there's no money in it. And the other thing that it reminded me was that the life of a hired gun means you have to forsake the chance at lasting happiness and I thought that that was pretty sophisticated stuff for like a early 60s western you know it had some some heavy themes the, the final line in the movie Yul Brenner, says only the farmers won we lost we always lose you know I was impressed by that I, I was, I, it was nice to be reminded of some of the things that was going on in that earlier film well the new film doesn't have quite that level of sophistication I, I actually quite enjoyed the 2016 Magnificent Seven but uh but it's you know it it doesn't quite deliver the way the old old film does. Uh, the basic structure is very much the same. Group of outlaws find themselves brought together by uh, Denzel Washington this time in the old Brenner role, and uh, you know they all have different ideas and different paths. Some of them are quite motivated, and you can sort of understand why they're motivated. Some not at all, <laughs> uh, and you don't really understand why they're being. Taking part in this, there is some money involved, uh, and and enough money from the looks of it. Although they're non-specific, actually, how much is getting them to help out this this uh, village that is is being uh, uh, terrorized by this this evil man and his army. But uh, but that's less. It's more of a motivator this time, which somehow, of course, makes the heroes seem less heroic. Um, and and they don't really the, their lives are pretty glamorous in some ways. I mean, they're they're very cool bunch of people. People. At no time do they ever really doubt their mission, uh, but you know it's um, it, it it is what it is. It's a, it's a modern Western. We don't see a lot of them. Uh, the and and for me, what really worked for it was the final payoff. That that the fun the, the final like thirty minutes were were pretty great, and and that that uh, take but basically put paid to some of the sins of the earlier part of the script. Uh,
1: okay, I think I'm think I run out of breath. <laughs> uh, uh, Stephen, what did you think? Uh, I, I went in with uh, kind of uh, moderated hopes, I guess. I, you know, I, I, the trailers for it had me kind of curious. I thought, can they pull it off? Uh, Denzel seems like a good choice. Chris Pratt is, you know, like I guess he's kind of the Jim Coburn thing because he's not really a Steve McQueen type, you know. And, and maybe it was a mistake to try and line up the current seven with the uh, the classic ones in the John Sturgis Western um, because they don't really quite align. No, they with don't. Some of the new editions and. There, know, there's no kind of... there's no real
0: horse Buchholz character. They're, they they no. sort of set up at the beginning that there's this kid who's from the village who might wind up being the sort of the kid that learned something,
1: but he vanishes yeah. at a certain point in the film. He just kind of drops away. Yeah, as usual, most of the villagers are pretty nondescript. Yeah. Uh, I thought maybe that's one of the things that could have changed for the new version. Maybe, you know, they sort of come together at the end. And, of course, we have the plucky young widow who... Uh, who kind of shows her metal, and then you know, in a lot of ways, she's maybe one of the more interesting things about the the new one, uh, and one of its stronger points. Um, but uh, you know, I, I do feel that uh, it doesn't. It, it's a lot better than I had any right to expect. I think. I think it could have been a real disaster, and I think uh, Anton Fuqua, I think is how yeah, he who's uh, who's obviously worked with Denzel before in, in Training Day and, and Ethan Hawke and and Ethan Hawke. Yeah, um, you know, opted to not go for the super splashy, you know, digital shutter effect kind of modern action take on the story. He decided to stick to kind of a classic approach to the way it was shot and and uh the way it plays out. And I think that was a smart choice. Um you know it'll certainly age a lot better, I think, in the way that he made it, rather than try and use a lot of dated visual effects that are kind of current from the last little while. And um You know that that appealed to me. Um, I thought it was paced reasonably well. You're you're right that the the, the older one does feel a bit lugubrious and kind of takes its time, um, whereas this one at least has some some things happening along the way to keep you interested. Um, But uh, you know it 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 doesn't uh, it doesn't have the kind of the classic uh, score of the original, which was a big selling point until they, until the until final, the credits. final <laughs> credits. In <laughs> fact, I noticed that they they borrowed a lot of they borrowed that trumpet thing from Patton of all things. The Jerry Goldsmith uh kind of you know, yeah, the trumpet. Yeah, 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 sure. Uh, that was kind of a weird thing to borrow. Um and uh I don't I don't know that uh the rest of the cast, even even Ethan Hawke, seems a little kind of nondescript to me in some ways. Uh, and Chris Pratt is basically doing his Chris Pratt thing. So yeah, see, this is the thing: Chris Pratt is becoming
0: this you know A list star thanks to a couple of of what I think, seem to think are uh, lucky breaks. I, no one could have seen. Seen that? uh I mean, Jurassic World. Okay, fine. I didn't. I, I really didn't like the movie, but I can understand why. Yeah, you know, it it, it, it it did well, and why he did well as a result. Uh Guardians of the Galaxy. Who could have guessed that that would have been as huge as it was? And I thought he was great in it, but I I'm not sure that he's anybody else but that guy. And in this film, I'm not convinced. He just he just sort of coasts on his charm, and and it's not it's not working for me. I, I want to see something else from him. So I know he's going to be. In this big film *Passengers* coming out this fall, this is with uh, right. with Jennifer Lawrence, and I I hope that he shows something more than we've seen of him so far because I'm getting a little tired of like the cool you know charming kind of dude that Chris Pratt, Pratt is uh, on on film. Uh, for me, Ethan Hawke. I like him more and more all the time. He's an actor who, when he was young, I mean, he and I are roughly the same age. When he was uh, in 20s, in the 20s, I really didn't like him as a sort of like, you know, the sort of greasy uh, Gen X uh, uh, dude. And, uh, And he has matured into a really interesting actor. And I thought that his goodnight, Robichaud, which is a terrific name for a character, (laughs) by the way, uh, is sort of a mix of the Robert Vaughn and the Brad Dexter characters from the older movie with sort of an added PTSD subplot that not quite resolved, but but I felt that his presence and what he brought to the film you know gave it a little bit of an extra kick which i really liked i also love peter sarsgaard i'll watch that guy in anything and here he's doing his his sort of malkovich-esque menace which he and john malkovich actually have very similar voices and when when sarsgaard's played the bad guy that's i feel like they are sort of spiritually connected those two actors uh yeah he was great and you know denzel's denzel
1: he's pretty reliable yeah yeah and you know we've seen him do the darker thing in a lot of films more recently obviously training day and and uh man on fire with tony scott you know another director that he's kind of or you know before tony scott passed of course it was a director that he clicked with in in a number of films um you know i did like that sort of post-civil war undercurrent that runs through the film i thought that was uh without being overstated it was a nice kind of grace note that that is obviously running through a lot of the characters minds as the as the action takes place um you know the fact that he's acting out of revenge you know which i think they try to make it like it's a big reveal at the end but, but it really is clearly is not no the, you know we know <laughs> that you know he's not doing it for money uh, uh really you know especially the way his ears perk up when he hears the name of uh of uh, that ridiculously named bogue. peter starsgard <laughs> yeah bogue bogue so <laughs> um you know it's uh you know i guess he's a bogeyman um oh go- <laughs> yeah yeah that's right they're nicely done yeah, yeah sure <laughs> but um you know so so he's got something going on in the back of his head his his motivation or whatever and his inner life and all that kind of stuff so um that it's 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 less of a mixed bag with with him at the fore i think for me that that at least he's he's a commanding presence i mean did he just turn 60 or he's in he's, his, he's his around senses? he's around that yeah yeah and, and uh, yeah i wouldn't think it to watch no. this film you think of how long uh, and we we've actually talked about doing a denzel show at some point down the road there's certainly enough uh Good material in his catalog to 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 mull that over, and some, Absolutely. some films I'd love to to revisit for sure. Um, so it's I, I I do think that the strengths kind of outnumber the weaknesses for this film, and uh, hopefully it gets more people watching the original. I, I think it'd be fun. You know, I'm I'm sure the same way that I'm sure that most people that went to see the Magnificent Seven in 1960 probably had not seen the Seven Samurai. I think it's pretty pretty safe bet that the film was not as well known, and you know, certainly um, nobody had their home home theater 16 millimeter prints of, of, uh, of the Kurosawa film kicking around. Um, so, I mean, it, it seemed pretty original to people then before, you know, later it became better known that, that in fact it was borrowed material. And, uh, there, there's some, there's some interesting nods to, uh, to spaghetti Westerns You know, which hadn't really come on the scene uh, when the original Magnificent Seven came out. In fact, it was probably one of the films that helped inspire the spaghetti Western, the Italian Western movement of the 60s. Well, Eli Wallach's presence as well. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's clearly why he got used uh, for the good, the bad, and the ugly. Sure. He makes
0: such a great bad guy.
1: Leone must have been a huge fan of of that film to to bring him on board for, you know, his bigger, bolder Western uh, a few years later. Um, And then in this film, there's, for example, the. the uh, I think he's a Cherokee or Comanche warrior that uh, that comes on board is named Red Harvest. I mean, of course, Red Harvest is the novel that was the inspiration for uh, Kurosawa's *Yojimbo*, which was the inspiration for *Fistful of Dollars*. So, <laughs> right, and more know. nods to the yeah. to the remakes and the remakes of the remakes. So there there is a little there, there is a fair bit of Western geekiness happening in, happening in this film, which is kind of and they they it's. Subtle enough that I, you know, the the right people will get it, I guess. And, you know, when after I saw it, uh, a friend of mine who had who'd had seen it, I think remarked that you know they were happy that they didn't just Tarantino it all up with being too too clever. But yeah,
0: well, that's the thing, right? Um, these days, the only one who's making the only one who's making westerns that are like mainstream that people are going to see is. Is Tarantino because his last two have been Western. so it's arguable that many of his former films were also westerns in some way or another. Mm. Uh, you know, Kill Bill, and um, but but yeah, true, true it's, romance, even. yeah yeah even true romance. But but he's uh, sort of a one man western maker these days, and and his films are super popular. You know, more credit to him. But but you're right. This is a very different kind of thing. This is in some ways is is sort of more true to the original spirit of of the genre. Uh, and I yeah. I think it's okay. I, I was I was like you. I was impressed by how much I enjoyed it. Uh, but it is, you know, we've we've uh, we've done our modern Western. That's podcast. right. <laughs> I was
1: just thinking that too. Then.
0: <laughs> we uh, we need to stay on track and say that that uh, that you know. I think if I think if people do rediscover. Uh, the original Magnificent Seven after having seen this and also the Seven Samurai, then it's totally worth it that they're making remakes, you know? And, and, and the fact this one, this one was pretty, uh, this was pretty entertaining. So, so, you know, uh, I would say a, 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 guarded, but a, but a, a definite recommendation.
1: Yeah. And I, you know, I, if, If you're, some people just don't like Westerns. I I, I don't think we got into this too much uh, when we did our modern Western thing. I mean, this film doesn't try to reinvent the genre or anything like some films that we were talking about previously do, Um, you know, or or bring a modern feel to to an older story. It's very much a traditional classic Western. You know, there are no hip hop songs played at any point. It's not posse. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yeah, in some ways I could compare it, though it's
0: not quite as successful as the Coen Brothers' True Grit.
1: Yeah, well, th- there's a film to talk about in this show, as uh, in the remake uh, department, um, one that's really successful. In fact, uh, you know, I think for the most part surpasses the original uh, material. But um, but 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 this one is 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 if someone's curious about you know has never seen a western before and has just thought they don't care about cowboys and. Or, and all that uh, th- this might not be a bad place to start because a it's got a lot of recognizable faces in it which makes it appealing to uh, to maybe a, to a younger viewer and it's you know it's quite packed with action and and uh, suspense and and you know it's certainly got a finale that uh, that just goes completely over the top As, at some points I was thinking that it was a bit too over the top with just this endless stream of bad guys getting mowed down and not being able to tell. You know who it was just it was just generic you know the generic army of a hundred bad guys it did occur to, to me that or, that how did the townspeople
0: were able to tell the difference between other townspeople and the bad guys because it wasn't like the
1: bad guys all wore black hats, yeah, at some point people are just shooting at whatever moves, yeah, which <laughs> yeah. you know which probably did happen and and you know obviously shootouts of this proportion never happened in the old west, but uh you know the, there's certainly that confusion and chaos aspect of uh of these kind of uh these, uh, Donny Brooks, if you will, <laughs> these with Colt 45s that, uh, that could break out, you know, and, uh, although of course, uh, you know, I, I try not to get too much into the accuracy, uh, trap because of course, you know, you, you, start thinking, well, you can't hit something at that range with a revolver and, you know, and all that kind of thing, you know, nobody's that good with the, with the six shooter you know, they're just, you know, they're fine at close range, but really it's not the sort of thing you, you know, get somebody at a hundred yards with or whatever. But, um, that's that would be a big mistake because there's so many movies i would have to write off at that point but uh definitely definitely see see this if you if you're curious about getting into the western genre and definitely check out the original it's 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 a highly entertaining movie that has aged pretty well uh especially if you get a, a good copy of it. it it stands up uh pretty well and, and in fact the original had i think three sequels uh before and then maybe went to a tv movie or something like that like i think the the Magnificent Seven sort of saga got drawn out like for almost two decades after the original, you know, as long as Yul Brenner was around. I didn't even realize yeah. that. Yeah. Um,
0: They're clearly not as well
1: regarded as the original. No, um, in fact, I think I have a set at home that has the first two together. And uh, and the second one, you know, obviously doesn't have all the cast members from the original because some of them don't make it, but uh, spoiler alert. But, uh, you know, it's, it's certainly a law of diminishing returns as, as you get sort of, the more B-list actors come on board, you know, not that Horst Buchholz is a is an A-list actor by any stretch, but uh, you know, this is kind of is one of his couple of shots at glory. And, yeah, you got to give him that. Yeah,
0: a German German actor in the Old West. This is the thing. The casting is so odd in that first one, <laughs> but you know, I mean, he's not bad. It's just a little odd that he has a German accent. So it it, it behooves me. It behooves me. <laughs> Everyone should be behooved. Everyone should be behooved once at some a, point in their life. Once a week at least. Yes, yes. Uh, it behooves me to point out that when we're talking about remakes, we're living and at a time in, in cinema, in Hollywood uh, particularly, where the remake is is one thing the sequel is another and a reboot is yet another. Now the reboot has become a popular term in the last, I don't know, maybe 10 or 15 years, uh, just in terms of mostly in terms of franchises. Like it's the idea that, that a a studio will restart a franchise in order to hopefully extend them. And sometimes by recasting as in the recent Spider-Man movies, which didn't work out so well, at least not so far, um, or maybe Mad Max: Fury Road, a, a reboot, a relaunch of a franchise that's 30 years old, and by by using a new actor, but the same director coming back to it. Um, recently, of course, there's the X Men movies. It's it's uh, went back in time with a series of prequels, and then one that was uh, sort of a prequel and a sequel in a in a weird way. <laughs> yes. um, and then, but you know, uh, and then there's something like Creed. Which is a sequel to the Rocky movies, but it's it's really a reboot in some ways because, and you could even argue it's a remake because it's basically very much the same story of the original Rocky movie with where, where except Rocky is in the coaching. Sort of position, and uh, you know Michael B. Jordan is the is the Rocky character, yeah. the 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 young angry young man who wants to make something of his life, and and uh, and then there's a bit of romance there too. I mean, the story, the the sort of beats are very similar to the original Rocky, but it's also works. I mean, this is an example of where it works
1: really well. I, I loved Creed; I thought it was one of the best movies last year. It was terrific. And then we have Star Trek, which is a reboot and a remake at the same time. <laughs> yes. yes, or at least the, the the second one was for sure because they. They, uh, you know, obviously we've got the new cast playing the characters played by the original cast from the 60s TV show and the movies of the 70s and 80s. And then, but then uh, in the second one, they remake the second movie, The Wrath of Khan, although they don't quite, they try to sneak it in there that at first you don't realize that it's, because I remember going to see it before I knew much about it. And I think, you know, at some point they reveal that Oh, this! By the way, it's a remake of Wrath of Khan. Like, yeah, they yeah. Of, they hid, they hid the fact, and just it ticked me off. Yeah,
0: I, I did. Me too. I was not a fan of that film whatsoever. I felt it really diverged from what I always loved about Star Trek as a as a series and uh yeah and, and i i feel that that kind of thing it's you're trying to fool what were they trying to do they're trying to fool their audience like n- anyone worth their salt any real star trek fan could sniff it out yeah it was just like their market it was almost like their marketing team and the filmmakers were at odds and uh it it didn't serve the the uh the film well uh you know and then um another recent remake was Ghostbusters, which is supposedly a reboot but feels like a remake, just with a female cast, I think it actually might have been better as a sequel. I enjoyed the film, but I felt like if if you are able to get the original cast together, at least for a cameo, which many of them showed up for cameos, why not just make it an actual sequel and then have those moments where those that those casts play those characters again. I, I just felt like that would be, uh, that would be great. Uh, um, you know, and then we still see sequels. Now, some of those, I'm thinking about the Marvel movies against the superhero genre being so popular. Uh, those aren't really sequels, but more episodes of a series because it's, mm. it's sort of a, those are, are sequential, you know, ongoing series. So I don't think of, of even a second or a third Captain America or Iron Man movie as a sequel necessarily. It's just all part of a greater, bigger universe. Well, with with ghost bu- with
1: Ghostbusters, with ghosts, I have a cold, folks. With with Goldbuster, Goldbusters, try not, again, sir. One more time, you can do it. With Bust Ghosties, with Post Toasties, um, with Ghostbusters, I I think that it. I don't think that Dan Aykroyd and Bill Murray necessarily wanted people to see their characters as old men. I think I think you was, think that was it. It was ego. I, I think. Well, I, I think there was some of that. And with Harold Ramis gone and and Rick Moranis decidedly not wanting to be involved um, which I kind of uh, I think it's cool that they have those cameos I think it's even cooler that Rick Marana said I don't want
0: to
1: do this <laughs> right yeah. um, I give him full props for that um, but I suspect with with Harold not being involved because he's dead um, I, I think th- they decided that they just didn't want to you know Ernie Hudson I'm sure would have just done whatever you know <laughs> whatever came across the table but uh, I I suspect that they they wouldn't have wanted to revisit those characters as 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 older men for whatever reason that, you know, they still think of them as, as their them in their prime. I mean, that's just me thinking of a weird theory. I mean, I'm sure it was Paul Feig's decision in, in the long run, but probably, uh, and maybe he didn't want to, he didn't want to see them that way either. So
0: yeah, it's possible. I, I, I you know, I just, I, I feel it like it does feel like a
1: missed opportunity. Yeah.
0: Sure. Yeah. And, and to redo so many of the familiar moments, sometimes I I find it just feels a little sort of hollow. And maybe it's because I am of the age of the generation wherein I can still remember the original so well, obviously they're available anytime Mm. to watch them, that to do a new version, a reboot, sometimes feels a little bit like, well, just, you know, continue the story somehow. Take these characters and and just revisit them how they are now. I mean, that's maybe what I liked mostly about Creed was because cause Sylvester Sloan did a terrific job playing Rocky, and he, he lived in that character, and it was really plausible. That he would be in that yeah. position now in his life, and uh, and then you've got this new wonderful new character. So, anyway, I, you know, it's it's
1: uh, this. We could talk about just this all oh, night yeah, for sure. But, uh, I mean, yeah, but, yeah. make yeah. Melissa McCarthy Dan Aykroyd's daughter, or yeah, something and yeah, totally. I would, I, I, I would totally buy. I, bought I that. don't think anyone would have a problem with that concept. Especially, no, you know, but anyway, mm.
0: but there it is. I'm sure we're going to see many, many more of these things. In fact, uh, one of the ones on my list, Ocean's Eleven, which uh, you know, I think. You can go online and see lists of of what remakes are better than the original. It's a short list, but there are a few people, a few of these movies that... Oh, there's tons of those, yeah. that, uh, ...that... that people sort of agree on. And and certainly the original Oceans 11 is not a movie that, that people really uh, like very much other than the fact that it's kind of cool to see the Rat Pack all together, all young and in their prime, but as a movie, it's not great. Uh, And then Steven Soderbergh went and took the concept, put a bunch of famous people in it and made three very entertaining films. Um, You know, and, and I think that that, that, that that's, that and they're going to continue that now there's going to be an Oceans 8 yes. in 2017 yes. with a female cast and and it will be a sequel because uh the lead is Sandra Bullock and she plays George Clooney's sister. Ah, okay. So that's how they're doing it. You know, and I think that's great. I th- I think I really like that and and I think if you're going to continue that idea and run with it in a different direction, I think I think that works. Um but then, you know, okay, so what's the the question is, what remakes are actually better than the originals? So I sort of try to think about the most uh, well regarded at least critically commercially re- remake of the last 10 years or so and and one just immediately popped into my mind because it won best picture at the Oscars and that's The Departed which some oh, right. people may not realize is actually a remake of a film called Infernal, Infernal Affairs, Affairs. Yeah. from 2002 It is a trilogy yeah, yeah. So, so Infernal Affairs, I, I went back and watched the original because this is a case where I'd seen The Departed. I know it quite well. So what's the original like? And uh, it's directed by An- Andrew Lau and Alan Mack, and it's a Hong Kong cop drama about a guy who's in deep cover with the mob, uh, Tony Leung, and a mole, Andy Lau, working for the bad guys amongst the cops. It's basically the same story. Uh, now, the, the American remake, The Departed, actually diverges – in some plot points, but The Infernal Affairs is very much worth seeing. It's it's a really glossy, suspenseful, full of twists. In fact, there were many times that it took me by surprise. Knowing The Departed, the they changed enough that there is enough suspense that you will be surprised if you go back and watch Infernal Affairs. How different it is. Mm. Um, but uh, but you know, obviously, uh, there's. What what uh, Scorsese was able to do with this sort of blueprint of story is, you know, turn into something quite different and quite amazing enough, good enough, and and revered enough and impressive enough that it won him the Oscar and uh, and it gave a bunch of great roles to a bunch of A-list Hollywood stars. It's uh yeah, it's really interesting to watch the two of them together, and I uh, I recommend it to anyone who who just kind of was interested in the sort of mechanics of filmmaking to see how such a complex plot is transferred from from Hong Kong, which has its own cliches, too. There's a lot of oh, melodrama yeah. and and too much score and too much slow-mo. All that stuff that I sort of associated with John Woo is yeah. very much part of this film. And then Scorsese, who has his own own style. Uh, you know, and I, I think, uh, anyway, they're an interesting double feature, and I, I'd recommend it if you're interested <laughs> in seeing how that
1: happens. Yeah, well, some of that basic plot of Infernal Affairs also kind of goes back to John Woo's Hard Boiled, which was the last film he made in Hong Kong before sure. coming over here to make some fairly disappointing action films but um the uh but yeah it's it the the original is 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 a pretty good kind of hong kong police procedural you, you know you get a lot of nice you know location stuff and 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 you know they always have a nice feel for the city in those films and and uh and nothing is ever what it seems and all that kind of thing but uh yeah it gets turned into grand opera with uh scorsese and and you know it's set in boston it's it's really utilizes that location and that setting really well. Uh, Nicholson has fun as a variation on Whitey Bulger, I guess yeah. is, is what yeah. he's doing. Um, you know, I, I like his Whitey Bulger-esque character better than Johnny Depp's actual Whitey Bulger character. Um, and it, yeah, definitely, definitely gets uh, raised above the material. for Yeah.
0: Yeah. I felt like a little bit, I felt though, maybe this is just nostalgia, but I, I'm a big fan of Jack Nicholson, but I felt like his sort of operatic bad guy, uh, I sort of wish that that uh, Scorsese had gone back to De Niro for that role. I just felt like it would have been a great moment to see them work together again. And I hope that they do wind up working together again because I think they sometimes bring the best from each other. But uh, but otherwise, yeah, I really liked uh, I really liked that film. And I think um, I think Matt Damon and Leo, Leo DiCaprio are both terrific as those sort of key characters who are so sort of at war with each other through their various organizations. Um, yeah. So so there's that. And then I thought about other other remakes that are are really positive And, and are, and there's, there's like a trilogy of, of horror remakes, although horror as a genre goes to the well way too often. Oh with yeah. Well, there's so many bad ones. I mean, I, I, it's really rare that, that a remake in the horror genre these days is any good at all. I don't know if you saw the Blair, Witch new Blair, Witch uh, version, but I hear I it. It is abysmal.
1: Oh really? <laughs> it is. It makes you mad. <laughs> oh no. I'm so you know, sorry to hear that. It's, it's, it's pretty terrible. Um, It's, I mean, it's 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 actually a sequel uh, in the sense that the guy is going back to look for his sister who was in the first movie. They completely ignore the second Blair Witch, The Book of Shadows, I think it was called. Yeah, yeah. Which was a completely useless and unessential movie. This one, um, you know, they basically try to take the approach of the first film. Uh, but of course, there's no surprises because, uh, you know, this found footage thing has been done to death. Um, and, uh, you know, but now they have drones and they have, you know webcams up in the trees and and so they've got all this technology on their side and they're still the characters are still just as clueless and you know <laughs> self-serving as before uh-huh. and uh you know they, they add this kind of hillbilly couple that uh offer to help uh these uh, adventurers in the woods and find the the witch's house and all that but the, you know they, they they turn out to be fairly useless as well um and uh you know they throw in some some weird time loop stuff and and uh, make a lot of loud noises. There's a lot of there's a lot of really bogus scare material okay. in the film, which is after after they've done even one of the characters remarks like, "Would you stop doing that?" Or I wish that would stop happening. And the, you know, you're in the audience going, "Yes, I wish." It, you know, like actually just do something scary. Don't just you know jump out at people and. Uh, you know and you know it's, it's supposedly the rationalization for some of the things that happen oh well the woods are haunted so people can't hear each other yelling from 10 feet away and and all that kind of thing but it's uh, a little of that goes a long way yeah and, and then when they do get to the house it's this weird improbable place with just lots of corridors and rooms you know it's like it's in the middle of nowhere like they're not going to have all these corridors in the house they dragged all these materials into the middle of nowhere and and make a lot of useless tiny rooms anyway th- that's just logic uh, I'm not gonna go there but but they just drag out the house stuff of people running <laughs> up and down stairs and down corridors and into the yeah. basement and up the stairs again and quickly seeing something out of the corner of your eye and then you know and, uh, it, oh. it was it was wearisome and then the characters were you know you just waited for them to get bumped off one right on. I mean, right you know I think you I think in the original you did have some sympathy or, or you know or at least you kind of liked these people a little bit. Yeah, they and they they
0: seem to not in this one. They, yeah, they did seem to be sympathetic, and you you felt their fear. Even sometimes when they seem to be whining a lot, you still felt you felt where they're at. You felt their discomfort and, and uncertainty, and and yeah, I mean, yeah, I think for lots of good reasons, the original Blair Witch Project is is a classic, and uh, I don't understand. Yeah, I mean, I do understand why they do it. I, I do understand why. There's lots of reasons for remakes, uh, both for recognition factor and just for the money uh, that they hope to make. But uh, but yeah, I, I wanted to mention a, a few that really works. And, the, well, three I wanted to mention. Uh, the Thing from 1982, yeah. which is a remake of The Thing from Another World from 1951. Uh, David Cronenberg's The Fly from 86, which, of course, was uh, 1958. The Fly was, you know, one of the more campy, horror movies of of the day and help me, help me, <laughs> help me. Um, and uh, and then there is Uh, A horror movie that's been remade often, but it's the first remake that I like, and that's uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers. So there was the, uh, adapting the Jack Finney novel, uh, there was the 1978 version with Leonard Nimoy, Don Sutherland, and Brooke Adams. And that's remaking the Invasion of the Body Snatchers from 56. The Don Siegel movie. Yeah, the Don Siegel, which is actually pretty great too. Both of them are great. I really like it, yeah. uh, In in their own ways. Uh, And then it was remade again in the 90s. Uh, just r- simplified as Body Snatchers in 1993 by Abel Ferrara. And it's not, I haven't seen it in a while, but it's not an awful movie. It's just not as good as the first two.
1: Yeah, well, it, just, uh, it doesn't have that kind of cast. I mean, Kevin McCarthy is so great in the original. And and uh, and then he, I think Sam Peckabaza cameo is a meter reader or something. Right? Oh, yeah. In the, in the original one. Right. Um, and then this, the 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 70s one has this kind of me decade vibe uh, about it like 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 they're almost making a comment about the corporatization of america and people and stuff like that and, and the whole paranoid uh thriller aspect as
0: well it yeah. feels very much a kind of you know the um of that that era. Oh yeah coming out of
1: three days of the condor and yeah. the parallax view and that totally kind of thing. so yeah. it's, it's got that going for it too and and you know it's set in san francisco and in, which the city is really well used in the film as i recall and uh and the abel Ferrara one doesn't it's not cast as well but it was better than I expected. It's yeah. set on an army base. Yeah, yeah, like,
0: that's right. And Gabrielle Anwar is in it, who was a, a, a was sort of a starlet, I guess, yeah, at the time. For, for and for a moment, yeah, I really quite like her, but she's not. She hasn't. Her career never really, really soared for too long. Uh, but she's
1: fine in the film, and it's it's pretty effective. There, there's some good use of practical effects in the film, uh, and it's you know, like if it had been made ten years later. Well, there was a version. Well, that's was I'm going to get to that. Later yeah. That, that <laughs> wasn't great, but um, but. Uh, You know, the change of setting and, you know, it's not trying to copy the earlier film story-wise either. I I think they were just kind of taking the concept and running with it. Now Bell Ferrara is a quirky enough director that uh, he wasn't going to just try and do a carbon copy film. And I think uh, he brings an, un, an unsettling tone to the material that um, a more uh, run-of-the-mill director probably wouldn't have gone for. But of, of course, horror, you know, like if, uh, horror is like the the genre, where the remake is almost uh, like the gospel. Like if you yeah. think of, I mean, if you think of Dracula going back to the silent Nosferatu and then the Lugosi, and then uh, the Herzog Nosferatu. Yeah, the Herzog Nosferatu. So it's, a, it's like a remake inspired by the reboot of the. And, you know, but but then there's the, the the Hammer horror Dracula with Christopher Lee, which bears very little resemblance to the Bram Stoker novel, but it's got such a great performance from Lee and Cushing. Um, That you know you don't really care that much, and then of course you got Coppola's version, which yeah is very stylish and looks great, and and Gary Oldman is fantastic, but it you know has so many other drawbacks that it's I'm still I I waver between whether I like it or not depending on the day and when I see it and. You know what kind of mood I am in. It, for, it comes for Keanu. up. It comes up in our in our podcast quite regularly.
0: I think it's come up twice before. I think, I think you were correct. And uh, and it's yeah. We usually that's where we we are like oh Keanu should have stuck with with contemporary roles and not gone into these period dramas because he just doesn't quite fly. But he did. He was like the leading period actor of the day. He was in so many oh, yeah, period dramas sure. all the time and it made I just like what are you thinking, dude? <laughs> he was so much better when he was a surfer dude. <laughs> um of course now now I I think Keanu has a lot more uh experience and he's actually a much better actor than he was then. But but anyway, yeah, it's it's um yeah, it's funny you're right about the horror genre being so it just eats its own and again and again and, and yes, and I did want to say that those three films uh, those remakes are probably my favorite. Well, maybe my favorite remakes. I, I want to mention one a little bit later as well that I, I love because of uh, nostalgic reasons. But but I-, I felt like it was important if I'm going to watch the first three Invasion of the Body Snatchers movies, I need to watch the most recent, which was The Invasion from right. 2007 with Nicole Kidman and Daniel Craig. Daniel Craig, who has a lot of eye makeup on in this movie. Like <laughs> his, eye- his yeah. eyelashes are just gorgeous. Um, it's a famous bomb. It's It's not... Off, it is awful but it's it's really it's entertaining but it's the most campy of the four and that's what i think i liked about it it just it really just goes all over the place i gather it had terrible production problems was delayed a year because the studio wanted to reshoot a whole bunch of stuff and rewrite a bunch of stuff uh and it has veronica cartwright in it again who i always liked from the alien movie but she was also in the 1978 version of, invasion right. of body snatchers um i would say that if you really want to be a completist like me you know, see the first three, and if you really still have energy left for this story, watch the last one. I think it's mostly notable for Nicole Kidman's wardrobe. She sort of—it's fall in in Washington and Baltimore where it's supposedly shot, and uh, you know she wears a lot of lovely sweaters. But uh, but it's yeah, it is it is what it is. It's it's interesting. I, the one thing about this particular series of remakes that I I like is that they've all been made you know, like with a like in a generation later. So so there's different films. Filmmakers at a different time and different styles are remaking the movies in their own way, and I think that's kind of cool. I, I, you know, as a, the very the relative success of them is is debatable, but I I like that they uh, they have that that sort of different era specificity. <laughs> Hi, I'm Lindsay Cameron Wilson, and I am host of The Food Podcast. Now, this is not a cooking podcast. We'll talk about the history of food, we'll meet the players in the food world, and we'll explore the ingredients that fill our lives with flavor. Check us out on iTunes and Stitcher. We'd love to hang out with you.
1: Well, we're, uh, we're getting near to the end of our show and, and, uh, it, last time we were talking about horror movies and kind of just taking a sidestep into the realm of, I guess, fantasy, um, a story that has been made, uh, three times and, and there've been various sequels and, and offshoots and Japanese monster remakes with Godzilla, um, <laughs> and, and the titular character of the film that we were talking about. And that is King Kong, the King of the Apes, the giant gorilla, um, who we all know and love, uh, which has been uh, made and remade with varying degrees of success, and uh, the uh, I, I count the original film, uh, the RKO classic, among some of the best films ever made, regardless of uh, you know fantasy films or or action adventure or whatever category you want to put it in. Um, it is just a marvel of the movie making art at that time and uh, the stop motion animation, the emotion that comes out of that, that handheld, uh, you know, controlled armature puppet and, and the sense of fun about that film. I mean, it was obviously um, kind of uh, a big favorite amongst kids, but I think that that film was pretty much pitched at everybody at the time it came out, Uh, you know, like you have never seen anything like this before. And there was a lot of value. And in fact, most people at that point in time had not seen anything like that before. And, and uh, you know, people gasped when Kong climbed the Empire State Building and fought off the uh, the biplanes and, and plummeted to his doom. And uh, you know, and th- there's so many classic bits of dialogue. And you know, it was Beauty killed the Beast and all that? It's just like th- there's no moment of that film that I don't love. And so, I guess it it would be a natural thing to try and tackle again um, in in varying degrees. There was a sequel, Son of Kong. Um, which was more played for laughs. Uh, it's, it's certainly has its moments, but it's not nearly on the same level. Uh, and then King Kong came back to meet Godzilla in the sixties. And then finally, uh, in the 1970s, uh, Dino De Laurentiis, the, uh, the Italian producer of a lot of gaudy big budget films and some low budget films, the Barbarella at that point might've been his best known title with Jane Fonda, decided to take on the big ape. And, um, and, uh, it was not very well received at the time, but it's true. But I think over
0: time, maybe it's gotten a little more love. And uh, I, I have, it's, it's, I hold it very close to my heart because I think maybe it was the first remake I ever saw. I saw it before the original, the original sure. version. And uh, I saw it at a time when, when I was just very impressionable and, uh, and then I visited New York city. So went to the world trade center. And so the association of, of the seventies, uh King Kong climbing the World Trade Center and then actually having been there made it feel very real to me. Uh I've seen it times since and it's slow, like it really takes its time going where it's going and I it could lose it could lose a few minutes here and there for sure, but it has a certain something. Uh you know, I think I think partly it's the cast, I think that Jeff Bridges and Jessica Lange are really great uh and Charles Grodin as well. Charles
1: Grodin might be my favorite thing about that film. <laughs> just that kind of kind of <laughs> yeah and that gusto he brings to the the role in this case instead of being like the great showman of the first film he's in this case he's a he's an oil executive who's trying to like save his career with that big strike on this mysterious island in the mist in the pacific uh it turns out the oil there is not they say it's not cooked yet it needs another ten thousand years before right. it could actually be be, a, be of any use and and uh so then he becomes kind of like the entrepreneur to, to bring the ape back and i guess turn him into a mascot for the oil company or whatever because if i can't bring back oil at least i can bring back like a new ad campaign which is a which is a cool kind of shift on on mm-hmm. the idea that, that, that there's this, the whole corporate greed aspect of the film it makes it very kind of 70s yeah but but um you know some of the attempts to update the story for the time actually do work. Yeah, I think you're right. And I
0: I think what stayed with me are, are the is the imagery, that widescreen imagery of of uh, you know, there's a shot of of Kong who we're introduced to him and he's enormous and he, you know, he's just huge. And then we see him and he's tiny in the in the hold of the ship. Uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, and then later on when he breaks free and he climbs up the towers and and uh, yeah, and there's just this great widescreen kind of quality to it. There's an epic quality to it, which I, I really like. And that's what I think lives in my head when I think about the film. Uh, you know, and then, and then Peter Jackson went and, uh, and remade it again in 2005. And there's a lot about the Jackson film that I like. Uh, I especially like the finale where, where he, you know, in New York, where, where he, climbs the, um, he climbs the Empire State Building again. And, uh, and it's just like the quality of the animation and all the special effects. Are just amazing. Like I, I I'm really impressed by the film technically, but uh, emotionally. Oh yeah, and then there's the the fight with the the dinosaurs yeah. and, on the island. That's pretty great too. Again, another terrific feat of special effects um i don't i barely remember any of the characters uh, jack black i guess maybe I, I, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, like they didn't they didn't none of the characters really stayed with me unfortunately so so other than than the feat of of, uh, of filmmaking just as from the directorial and the and the special effects perspective i the film
1: hasn't really had found its way into my heart at all yeah i think my favorite thing about the peter jackson version is the uh the nod to his earlier uh uh dead alive there's a I don't know if you spotted that the, in the in the hold of the ship there's a cage marked uh Sumatran rat monkey or whatever it oh, was oh yeah uh, monkey rat or rat yeah anyways which is the animal that causes the zombie outbreak in dead alive slash brain dead whatever you want to call it Um so, so I you know I was like the one person in the theater who laughed at that I, I do remember thinking how gorgeous you know when the camera sort of swoops in on the Empire State building the biplanes start coming in from the distance I thought it was A really nice reinvention of that scene Uh, you know and i i thought that the scene on the rink in central park was cute you know with him and naomi watts um but it did not need to be three hours i mean the original one is like what an an hour and 40 minutes something like that and then it's just the thing is it's so brisk It, it you know it wastes no time at all and this one I think it took a good hour before they even got to Skull Island. Yeah. Or, you know, 45 minutes or something like that. And and it's like, that is not necessary. Yeah, the
0: the second one's pretty long too, but the third one feels too long.
1: Yeah, well, the second one, at least the voyage gets underway right off the bat. And, uh, you know, they don't spend all this time in New York City looking for a starlet and all that kind of stuff. Um, uh, The the second one is two hours and 14 minutes long. uh, And uh, it does feel like there's a lot of wasted time, like, just when they get to the island and yeah. and all this kind of stuff, um, but uh, but it does have a certain verve and and you know the, the script is by Lorenzo Semple Jr. Uh, this is the one from the seventies. Um, who uh, I think prior to that maybe was best known for being a writer on the 60s Batman series. Oh, yeah. Uh, I believe is is one of his major credits. Right. And uh, I think some of that sensibility creeps into the film. And, and I don't know that people at the time necessarily realized that some of it was meant to be campy and taken that way. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I, and I think my first exposure to that film was actually not from the film itself, but I think I read the Mad Magazine parody of it. <laughs> yes. Um which may have colored my early view of the film, but having watched it again recently, uh, I started having way more fun with it than I, I thought I would. You know, I thought it was going to be a slog, but, uh, you know, between Jeff Bridges kind of hippie journalist, activist dude, and, and uh, you know, Jessica Lange, you know, put me down, you chauvinist pig ape, which, <laughs> which of course is one of the famous lines from the film that's usually mocked. Right. But it's, you know, I mean, it's kind of fits her character. It doesn't, it, it's, it's, you know, it, she, at some point she realizes she's not really threatened by King Kong. She's just kind of annoyed by yes. him. And it's, <laughs> it, it, it's an interesting twist on it. And, uh, and uh, the there's just that kind of thing. The cops are kind of bumbling and, and, and I like that aspect of it too. So, it's, you know, it, once you, once you know, it's going to be more of a comedy than you expect, um, it's a little easier to take. I yes. Think. Yeah. No, I, I agree.
0: I agree. Um, so, so before we complete our chat about remakes um earlier you mentioned how it would the one good thing about remakes is 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 it may uh turn the curious on to the original uh, in some capacity certainly with uh, magnificent 7 uh let's hope that that's what happens um there are a few films remakes that I think are are good or positive for some reasons, but I also think, I hope that it, it sends people back to watch the originals. I consider Scarface from 1983, <laughs> going back to see the original Scarface from 1932. That would be, that makes for an interesting double feature. Um, no kidding. And uh, Insomnia from 2002, the Christopher Nolan film uh, with Al Pacino and Robin Williams, I think is fine, but the original with Stellan Skarsgård, the original Norwegian film from 1997 is amazing. It's It's a, chilling like terrifying handling of tone in a way that i uh i
1: really enjoyed it's and, really unsettling it's yeah. totally unsettling you, you totally yeah. get inside i mean stellan skarsgård is such an amazing actor and sometimes i feel like he isn't really given a lot to do you know you see him in the, the thor movies you yeah feel like he's kind of wasted um but here he's you know just this this detective on the edge and not sleeping and of course the eternal sunlight is just kind of driving him a little bit nuts and you really do feel like you get inside his head in that film and the pacino one is actually the pacino one was like the first good pacino performance i'd seen in a while Mm -hmm. because i I felt like he'd made a string of you know like i think of like scent of a woman and devil's advocate kind of things where he's just being over the top and and kind of showy and and kind of annoying and Mm -hmm. here you know here he dials it down and he's got the world weary thing going on like a like a you know, more like a classic 70s Pacino kind of role. Um, and, uh, you know, I thought the Alaskan setting was great. And, but, yeah. But you're yeah. right. It, it doesn't quite get you on edge the way the original did. Yeah. Um, and I wanted to just
0: float the idea that some remakes appear to be remakes, but they're not remakes. And that's when, when I mean, they are and they're not. Uh, and that's when, when a filmmaker does a version, adapts a book that's been adapted before. I think there's an argument to be made that some, some, we mentioned uh, True Grit. Uh, it, True Grit doesn't really have a lot to do with the original, the Coen Brothers versus the John Wayne film, but they're both adaptations of the same book. We've seen that happen a lot with Patricia Highsmith. Yes. Uh, her, I was familiar with the talented Mr. Ripley, which uh, the Anthony Minghella film, which is a quite a fine thriller in a lot of ways. A lot of young actors, I, I liked it quite a lot. But then we watched not too long ago, Purple Noon with Alain Delon from 1960, yes. and it's amazing. Like yeah, it's, to watch it, it's really like, fantastic. It's really fantastic. I was so glad to have seen that because I mean, in some ways, it's it's better than than the talented Mr. Ripley, even though it comes from the same source material. There's also uh, Vim Vendors did the t- the, the American friend and then in 2002 there's a film called ripley's game with john malkovich that's again uh adapting another book from the same ripley
1: series and quite good actually it's it's Uh, You know, I I heard it went straight to video and I thought that, oh, well, that's a kiss of death. And then I actually watched it and it's, and he's great. Yeah, Malkovich
0: is, it's one of his signature roles, I would say, along with like Valmont from Dangerous Liaisons. If you're a fan of John Malkovich, seek out Ripley's game. He's so good in it. I mean, Ripley, the character is a sociopath. So, you know, (laughs) enough said there. Yeah, if you know, I mean, I probably, the Talented Mystery is probably the most well-known of those adaptations, Mm -hmm. but all of those movies are really worth seeing. And it doesn't matter that it's being adapted, you know, 20 years earlier, what have you. They're all very much worth seeing and now there is another film which only the original I think is, is worth seeing is the, uh, is the Thomas Harris adaptations uh-huh. Manhunter and then Red Dragon Manhunter is an amazing film Michael one of Michael Mann's early works I mean it's very 80s and it's very stylized but it is gripping and of course most people know the, uh, the it's not a sequel it's, it's just a, another film made from, from the, the, the same series of books which is The Silence of the Lambs right. uh, but yes later on they decided well you know Anthony Hopkins is a huge star and everyone loves him as Hannibal so we're going to remake or we're going to go back to the original Red Dragon and then make that into a feature film in 2002 to many diminishing returns uh, it's just it I don't really know how it doesn't work because they have a terrific cast and Rafe Fiennes as the killer is is amazing Right. but and in some ways it's actually closer to the novel because Fiennes has the big tattoo on his back and uh, it just but it just doesn't work and I'm just I'm It was really disappointing to watch it and think, well, half of the people who watch this are going to be thinking, oh, this is just crap. And and there is another version of this book
1: yeah. called Manhunter from 1986, which really is worth seeking out. Well, it, it's amazing how good Manhunter is, considering it was cut off at the knees uh, in post-production, because uh, the uh, the tooth fairy killer in, in the in the movie actually did have the tattoo and he and did the stuff with the the William Blake paintings and all that kind of stuff and then uh the uh producers or whoever decided that um because I don't think it was man's choice but they they thought well all this William nobody knows who William Blake is and they took out the red dragon of the title and uh and so they had to change the title to Manhunter um some of that footage exists and some of it does some was tossed out some of it only exists on videotape and um I think the latest version manages to cobble together the most complete version they could, um, but there's some some scenes that are kind of crucial in the book that only survive in still form, which is kind of a kind of a tragedy. And yet the film is still great, probably um, because of the great performance uh, as Will Graham and and a pretty disturbing Tooth Fairy.
0: Yes, yeah, and and I actually, you know, uh, Hannibal Lecter does make an appearance uh, as Brian Cox, and yes. in some ways just as terrifying or even more so than Anthony Hopkins. He has far f- less screen time as he's given in the later films or in any of the other films from this series of books. But uh, with what time he has, he makes a huge impression.
1: Yeah, you you see the methodical mind at work, but he's a very cold, very calculating. Like the way that hop I mean, Hopkins, obviously it's an iconic performance in Silence of the Lambs, but at the same time it's like, you know, you only have to spend like thirty seconds with this guy to know he's a psycho, and you you should be avoided at all costs. Um, you know, Brian Cox—it's a little easier to to see him as someone who would uh, kind of maybe win your confidence before he uh, eats your liver. So, um, you know, in, in a way, he's probably truer to the spirit of Hannibal Lecter as he is in the book. Uh, you know, and then of course things get weird with then Harris, after saying he wouldn't return to the character, wrote the book Hannibal, um, which brings back Clarice Starling and uh, Hannibal Lecter. Um, But in the book, it seems to be more inspired by the Hopkins performance than his actual literary creation, which is a very weird kind of feeling like yeah, I they remember, start to inform each other yeah, yeah and i remember what reading the book thinking oh, okay well this is kind of like the movie hannibal in book form rather than the other way around and um and also uh, it annoyed me that will graham you know the guy who caught hannibal does not even get a mention in in the book you think that they would at least reference i think he does get a, you know like he's still undergoing treatment for or he's still ptsd Around the time of Silence of the Lambs*, although it's not mentioned in the movie, I don't think, but I think it is in the book. But in the third book, Hannibal, there's he's like he never existed. Like you think Clarice might give him a call, yeah, like looking think. for some tips on yeah, how yeah, to catch totally. Hannibal Lecter because yeah. she's, you know, she's never had to catch him. She only had to kind of deal with him as as a as a source, as it were. So uh, actually being on his trail is a whole other thing. And I thought that was a disappointment in that it didn't really. It uh, wasn't very innovative in the way it uh, dealt with that situation, but uh, yeah, Red Red Dragon is, is such a disappointment because it was a chance to kind of right the wrongs that were done to the story in Manhunter, um, and then it actually is worse, which is kind of hard to hard to believe. Um, I I had a real problem with uh, Ed Norton's portrayal of Will Graham. I I, I thought that uh, he kind of was phoning it in. I don't. It, I mean it. I mean, he's an actor I'm kind of hot or cold on anyway. I've I've certainly liked him and stuff, and thought he's given f- fantastic performances. But sometimes you, I've seen him in films where he's clearly not that interested in the material. Yeah, and this, this felt like one of those times.
0: Yeah, I think I think his uh, I think he's best in comedic roles often, like the uh, Wes Anderson films. I think he's he's really good in. I actually liked him. One of the, he was one of the parts of Birdman that I liked. It was that wasn't a film that I I was too fond of. But but yeah yeah no, I, I absolutely agree. And and William Peterson, man, that guy. Uh, it's funny he had his long career in television but uh, um, you know on CBS there but uh, but he <laughs> he's uh, he is amazing uh, in in manhunter and uh, yeah and for for that and for all sorts of reasons uh, that's that's the film to to watch not not the remake.
1: Well, that's about it for this week's Lens Me Your Ears and our look at remakes and uh, before we go I just want to mention one film I, I went to the trouble of watching it so I should mention it is that um, and many people probably don't even know this film exists but uh, in uh, the early 80s there was a remake of the Jean-Luc Godard new French new wave film classic Breathless uh, the, the great kind of uh, groundbreaking gangster film with uh, Jean-Paul Belmondo and Gene Seberg. A bout de souffle. A bout de souffle. <laughs> Uh, You know that just broke all the rules in terms of editing and and talking to the camera breaking the fourth wall all kinds of stuff were happening uh, in that film and it's it's still pretty exciting to see and uh, it's it's still a very uh, lively and uh, very present kind of film it really draws you in. and somebody had the bright idea, well, we should do a remake of it, but make it more 80s. And so in 1983, Jim McBride, who uh, has made some good films, he, he directed, uh, later directed The Big Easy, a fine uh, New Orleans uh, thriller with uh, Dennis Quaid and John Goodman, and also uh, a very fun uh, Jerry Lee Lewis biopic, Great Balls of Fire, and and also a ton of television work. He did some stuff for like Six Feet Under and, and uh, some other shows. Uh, hasn't done a lot of feature films lately and has made some kind of. Awful later film. But uh, anyway, Jim McBride uh, was was tapped to do this, starring Richard Gere in the Jean-Paul Belmondo role and uh, a newcomer, a French actor named Valerie Kapritsky, I believe. I'm, I'm just going off the top of my head there. Um, as So instead of a French hero and a uh, American uh, love interest, it was uh, a, uh, a, an American hero in Los Angeles and Las Vegas and, and a French girlfriend. Um, she is terrible. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, she she's had a long career back home in France, but she really has not tried to do anything else in English uh, since that film. Nothing of note. Um, and it's it's uh, it, Gear plays the character as such a jerk that that it's hard to imagine any attraction or any sympathy between either of these characters because she's supposedly an, like an intelligent grad student, and uh, you know Jean-Paul Belmondo does have a lot of charm. Gear obviously has a lot of energy, uh, more so than I'm, I'm used to seeing him but he's also a psychopath that no one would want to go near. And uh, it's, it's an interesting exercise. And uh, if you love the original, I recommend uh, seeing it. It won't, certainly won't taint your uh, feelings about the original Godard film, um, but it is an interesting exercise and, and probably a good example of why some classics should be left better off alone. So that was our look
0: back at uh, remakes and uh, originals on Lens Me Your Ears this week if you want to reach out to us we are on Facebook and we are on Twitter at Lens Me Your Ears we are also available via email at Lens Me Your Ears podcast at gmail.com and uh, on Twitter I am at Karsten Knox C-A-R-S-T-E-N-K-N-O-X And I'm at NS underscore S-C-O-O-K-E. We also have a Patreon account. If you'd like
1: to send us a few coins, we'd really appreciate it. Thanks very much. And of course, you can find us on iTunes and Stitcher and any place else you'd like to get podcasts. Or you can tune in on CKDU every other Tuesday. Thanks again to CKDU FM for their fabulous production facilities and of course, the Village Sound Podcast Network. Lends Me Your Ears is hosted by Stephen Cook and Karsten Knox and is produced
0: in Halifax, Nova Scotia at Village Sound for the Village Soundcast Network. Lends Me Your Ears is engineered by Luke Badio and is produced by Dave Anderson and Jason Michael MacIsaac, all music courtesy of Gypsophilia. Check out all of their amazing music, tour dates, and so much more at gypsophilia.org. Send feedback to Lends Me Your Ears podcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening.